Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to the 153rd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, I interview Sue Ludwig, a sought-after speaker, consultant, writer, and educator, a licensed occupational therapist, and certified neonatal therapist. She is president and founder of NANT the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, where she uses a unique blend of clinical expertise, innovation, and leadership to support the advancement of the specialized field on a global level. Sue is the media expert in neonatal therapy for the American Occupational Therapy Association, a member of the steering committee for the National Coalition for Infant Health, and a medical advisory board member for HOPE for HIE. Today, Sue lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, with her husband and a couple of dogs, and has two grown children. Sue is the author of Tiny Humans, Big Lessons, How the NICU Taught Me to Live with Energy, Intention, and Purpose. Sue is an amazing human being and a great friend. Sue helps us get off the hamster wheel and start being a leader in our life one moment at a time. So welcome, Sue Ludwig. Hello, Colleen O'Grady. <laughs> so the first question I ask all my guests is, do you have kids? <laughs> yes, I have two kids. Uh, my son, Jake, is 24, and my daughter, Abby, is 22. Yes. And Sue is my repeat guest, and so I'm so glad you're here. And we have something very, very happy, which is you've just published your first book, Tiny Humans, Big Lessons, How the NICU Taught Me to Live with Energy, Intention, 
and purpose. And I just got finished reading this beautiful book. So can you tell me the background story of Tiny Humans and why did you write this book? Yeah, so some of the background is that I'm a neonatal occupational therapist. And so I spent most of my career working in the neonatal intensive care unit with premature and sick babies. And the so that's the lens through which I kind of learned to see the rest of the world. And so the background for the book is really taking that lens that I had professionally and what happened when I turned that same lens and that same kind of expertise on my own life and then realized how much I wasn't living in the ways that the babies were teaching me were important ways to live. Being present and having intention and all the things I had to do at work, I really wasn't doing those things in my everyday life. So the so the book is really the intersection of those two things, of learning from the babies and then trying to take that and apply it to my life, which was in chapter one, kind of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the things that you learned from the babies? Wow. So many things. A few things that I think are kind of, you know, stood out to me in writing it was one is that we're all in development. We're often chasing, you know, deadlines or the next achievement or the next part of our career or the next stage of our children's lives and all these things and what we should be doing each step of the way as if we should be perfect at all of those or that they've, it's somehow we will have arrived, like the children will be raised or they'll be finished with high school or the job will be perfect or I'll achieve this. And the babies taught me that we're always just in a state, different stage of development and that it's okay to be wherever we are, that we're not behind and we're not really racing to anything uh, that we're just learning along the way. It's mm -hmm. one of the favorite things I learned from them. Yeah. So can you tell us the Jill Bolte Taylor quote, and then you have Energy 101 Work Edition and Energy 101 Family Edition. Can you talk about that? Learned from and then got to meet Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, who wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. And one of the quotes that became famous from that book is, please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this space. And when I first read that, in, and it was in a hospital setting that she originally had that thought and that quote, and it floored me at the time when I read it. And I, I kind of thought, wow, what is this? I never thought about being responsible for my energy. What does that mean? And so I kind of started exploring, you know, just paying attention to like, oh, I didn't realize I had this energy thing I was carrying around into a room or into a meeting or into my kids, you know, after school-ness, you know, so I started paying attention to that. And thinking like, wow, I didn't realize I had any control over it. And so in the book, I talk about my attempts at trying to be responsible for my energy at work first. And what that looked like in the NICU was that I really thought about if, if I'm going up to this bedside of this little tiny baby, what energy am I bringing to that baby? Am I calm? Am I centered? Am I grounded? What kind of energy do I want to bring to them? Because it was apparent that when you work with babies in the NICU, that they can't manage our energy too. You know, they don't have the capacity to take that on and remain stable. So it became very important that I could do that with them 
and not kind of drag whatever bad energy or just chaos or stress from the hospital or any of that into that incubator with me. And so I, I practiced that at work with a different level of clarity than I had before and noticed that the babies had fewer stress signs when I worked with them and just that I felt more on purpose when I was trying to do that. And it was intrinsically motivating, you know, like it, I wanted to keep doing it. And so then I, though, tried to bring that concept home and I thought, oh, well, I'll just try this at home. And so, you know, I was thinking, I'll just walk into the kitchen. I'm going to decide what energy I want to bring. And home was so much harder. You know, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you'd think the hospital would be harder with all the (laughs) things, but, you know, the hospital had like beginnings and endings. Like I could walk into the patient's bed space. I could put my gloves on or, you know, wash my hands before and after there was a beginning and an end. And at home, you know, you guys know listening is it's just constantly fluid. You know, it's just people in and out. And I, I, in the book describe, you know, thinking I was going to be like all responsible for my energy and then walking into the kitchen after school one day with the kids school and just taking in the scene of like the backpacks and the papers everywhere and the markers and the drink cups and the snack wrappers and the dog fur and like all (laughs) my ability to care about any of that or remember I was trying to do that went out the window. So it was, I slowly learned to bring that home and, and realize that when I tried to decide what energy I wanted to bring into the room with me or, or into the meal or anything, it just changed how I showed up. And I just felt more purposeful and intentional about, you know, I I started thinking of things like, what kind of energy do I want to bring to our dinner at night? Instead of it just kind of unraveling or happening or me spilling out whatever, you know, things I might want to spill out at dinner. It was an interesting thing to try to bring into the home environment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You talk about light blockers, like thinking we need permission, believing we we must be perfect, demanding preassurance, seeing self-care as selfish, and armoring up. Can you talk about one or two of those? Uh, Sure. I'll even maybe ask you to reread them to me just to pick. But like the demanding preassurance. Yeah. I like that one. (laughs) So demanding preassurance is the concept that we think everything must be certain before we take any action. You know, that we have to be certain that we're doing the right thing, certain that we have all our ducks in a row before we take any action. And this becomes paralyzing to us. So we might sit there, you know, if our kids are, we worry about things that haven't happened yet. And we put all our, you know, we think about if our kids are a little bit late, we think about, you know, we overstress about where they might be and we're constantly wanting certainty. And and preassurance. And what's very true, unfortunately, is that certainty is just never coming in case we didn't notice in this pandemic. But, you know, we, I think we build our lives around the idea that these certain things will happen. My children will be a certain way. They will enjoy certain things. They will have these kind of character traits. They will achieve the following things. And then when they don't all happen the way we think, because certainty isn't real. We think we did something wrong, that we failed, that, you know, all the energy we put into our certainty 
leaves us disillusioned. And instead, I think we have to understand that we're the only moment we really have is the one we're in and, and try to be there for our kids in that way, instead of all the things we're trying to build with our (laughs) pre-assurance. Yes. So we'll do one more. So you had one thinking we need permission. So can you talk about how that's a light blocker? Yes. So thinking we need permission, which, oh my goodness, I think we all have suffered from this. And I'll give you an example is, you know, a personal one is that just thinking I needed permission to take care of myself. Like if I was going to go do something that was just for myself, you know, I kind of was almost asking around for permission to take that time for myself all the way from that kind of example to starting the organization that I current, that I founded eventually was going around and shopping my idea, asking the world for permission for myself to go start this organization that I wanted to start. And how many times I tried to get other people to tell me it was okay, that I could be the person to do this was literally ridiculous. uh, How many times I was trying to ask for permission and to do just a thing that I thought eventually that I could do. And I think when we're seeking permission slips to do anything, that it's blocking our light because we're putting someone else in charge of our own decisions. We're putting someone else in charge of directing our our lives by waiting for their permission mm-hmm. instead of choosing you know, to lead our lives ourselves. This book really is a book on self-leadership and, and you really modeled that in this book, which I really appreciate. Can you talk about alignment versus balance? Because I love I love that chapter. Yeah. So I in in that chapter I talk about how balance is an energy sucking myth, basically, meaning that we're told to have you know a work life balance, and and I just don't think the math adds up. You know, we don't have this equal time to give our family and our work and our kids, or even if you don't have all three of those <laughs> things, that we don't end up splitting our life up into these nice equal chunks, and that when we try to do that we're often exhausted in the pursuit of that balance. Oh, well, I actually have had to work extra. So now I need to, now I need to spend extra time with my kids to make up for the work and vice versa. And then there's the work thing that happens, you know, during something that you want to go to your kids and it just, it just goes on and on. And you, I don't know who's in charge of the categories and when you're allowed to switch them or what, but it just doesn't work for me. And it nearly exhausted me to the point where I was, you know, falling asleep, driving home from work and things. Cause I was just trying to do all the things to keep my life in what I thought was balance and try to be everything for everyone in my life. And instead what I ended up discovering was something from the babies, which is looking at it from a place of alignment and in the NICU alignment means a lot of things, but um, it, it's a lot about how we position babies to help them develop with their body alignment. You know, just like if you are looking at your own body and your alignment and when you're in alignment, your body's comfortable and you don't have any pain and things like that. And when you're not, there's, it's a different story when you're out of alignment, your joints are out of alignment, your muscles are out of alignment. So I was using that concept to instead balance, think about you know, if I think of my life as kind of this, this, I see it as a line kind of like through my head, down my spine as being the middle of alignment. You know, when we're, we're coming back to midline, that's our alignment. 
And that if I instead put all of my priorities and my values along that line, along that center, then I could better choose who I spent my time with and how I spent my time because I would think of it like in alignment. So if I put my family and my friends and the things I most cared about professionally and my values in that sort of center space to me in alignment, then if a decision came toward me about how to spend my time and it wasn't in that center, I could say no to it and say, you know, that's really not in alignment with how I want to spend my time. Yeah. Um, and and this, sometimes I got pulled out of alignment and sometimes I still do, you know, where something's a bright, shiny object and I think, oh, that looks fun. And I go off and do something that's maybe not exactly in, in alignment with my values and my priorities. And what I feel like happens then is I can see that middle line, like my spine being like pulled out of alignment. Mm. And, but the, the really cool thing about alignment over balance is that you start to notice when you're out of alignment or when you're making decisions out of alignment. And instead of being like, you know, oh, I really suck because now I'm out of alignment and I shouldn't have done that. Look at me over here. You just know that you just go back to the middle. Like, you know, exactly where to go back to in order to make that decision the next time. And that's all. And you can just do that over and over. No, I love that. I really love that. So I want to ask you this question. Like, what do you mean by bargaining for mediocrity? (laughs) So bargaining for mediocrity to me is the constant part of the permission and, and all the things that I talk about in the book up till there is a lot of the things that I was doing in my life were me actually living down to what I expected of myself or what I thought I was instead of kind of living up to my aspirations. And that bargaining for mediocrity was me, you know, constantly saying, well, I can't do that. And I'm not that person. And I'm not that kind of person. And I couldn't possibly be strong enough to do this or, and all these things. And I was limiting my own self. I was afraid and I was unsure of things. All those light blockers were really kind of having, pushing me down into this place of mediocrity. And it's a, it feels safe there because you don't have to make any big people decisions and you don't have to lead your own life and you don't have to say no to things you don't really want to do and people you don't really want to hang out with and all the things. In the end, it's not safe. In the end, it feels like the hamster wheel, like being in a blur, like not being on purpose. But I think that we do it a lot when we're afraid to step out, kind of out of our comfort zones and seek a different way to live. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the hamster wheel a few times in the book, which I love the metaphor. I think most moms can relate to that. So if a mom is listening to this and says, I'm so on that hamster wheel, like what's the first thing she could do to kind of stop it or slow it down? That's a great question. I think one is it's great to even realize you're on a hamster wheel. I don't think I knew I was on a hamster wheel. And that feeling to me was being like running, 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 running toward what I didn't know. You know, kind of just running with no end in mind and running for things other people might think are important, but I never decided if they were important to me. And as far as in leaving you pretty depleted and exhausted. And so I think the first thing that you could do to slow the wheel is one, just realize you're on it. And the second is just to do one moment. So just take one moment. The next thing you do after you listen to this 
you know, whether you're at work or at home or in the car is kind of the next transition that you go to, like through a door in a house, through a, you know, whatever, the next physical transition, just say to yourself, how do I want to be in this next moment? Mm, And just use that one little tiny thing as a little launch pad for stepping off the hamster wheel, because I was like living my life so fast that I couldn't be in those moments. You know, they, all my moments felt hamster wheelish. They were too fast and blurry. And when I, the antidote to that to me was, was trying to be present in just one moment. And one of the ways that I found that helped me do that was by using those transitions. Like if I walked out of my office into the rest of my house, or I walked from my garage into my kitchen. So using those thresholds was a helpful way to remind me that I was trying to do something a little differently. I'd be like, hmm, what do I want to bring in here with me? And that little moment of decision and intention and energy just slowed the wheel. And I could actually like see things, you know, it was like all of a sudden things were beautiful and more vivid than they were on the hamster wheel. Yeah. So I couldn't do that with my whole life at all, but I could do it for a moment. And then I could do another moment when I remembered again later. I love that. So that kind of leads to the next question, which is you talk about being the leader of yourself. So what does that mean? Being the leader of yourself, a few things. One is that it's no one else's responsibility to lead you in your life, except you. And you are the only person you can, quote, control in the whole world. So in order to have a life that feels really purposeful to you, no matter what you're doing, it feels purposeful to you and meaningful to you. You have, you're the only one who can decide what is included in that kind of life for you. And so becoming the leader of yourself involves becoming really intentional about how you spend your time, the decisions that you make, even how you plan your year and your calendar and everything. It's like, you're going to decide what's important to you. And you're going to slowly align your life around those things and, and have to let other things go. And that takes making decisions that are sometimes really hard. It takes letting go of things and habits and people and things that you aren't in alignment with that life that you want to make for yourself. And I think, especially as moms, I think we feel kind of tossed around in the world. You know, we're kind of doing a million things for all the different people and animals and and all the things and (laughs) uh, all things, you know, human and inanimate. And it can feel like you're just living the life of all these other people. Like you're just kind of going behind everybody with a dustpan or something. And really you know, being the leader of your life is, oh, I'm, I get to decide and still be in service to your job and your people and all that, but you're making decisions from a different place. Mm, That's well said. So one of your chapters, you tied intentions and calendars together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So explain some of that. How how are those connected? (laughs) Yeah. So after, you know, all this other, other things I talked about, it was like, you know, the, our calendars are kind of our final wrestling mat for our attention. So I was, you know, trying to make all these changes in my life. And I thought I was being more intentional and I was being more intentional, but 
then I would like look at my actual calendar. And this was in my kids were much younger than they are now when I was living this. And I would look at the calendar and it was, you know, in 75 different colors and things on the side and packed to the gills. And, and I was like, wow, so that really doesn't look like something that someone who's trying to be more mindful and intentional. And it looks like, you know, like ultimate chaos in my calendar. And then work-wise, you know, I think I talk about in the book, I was going through things in my calendar and the person who was mentoring me at the time were saying like, what's this stuff? And, and, and I would say like about a, maybe a committee I was on, whether it was at the kid's school or, or wherever. And I'd be like, that thing feels like death to me. Mm, yeah. You know, and I'm like, oh, I don't like that thing. And I, and I, and she said, you know, there will be no more feeling like death. <laughs> so, so I literally had to go through my calendar and just look at it almost objectively and say, what is, is this just a bunch of stuff I signed up for? Or are these things I actually want in my life? Because this calendar is my life. Like this is what's happening. Yeah. And it's a reflection of what I've chosen. I've signed up either myself or my kids for all these things. Yeah. How do I reconstruct my calendar to better reflect my own intentions for how I want my life to feel? And that doesn't mean I have, you know, all kinds of placid places in my calendar to just be like sitting in a bathtub with candles or something. So I'm not, <laughs> I have a very real life, but I gotten rid of so many things that I used to think I had to do. And in, in order to have, I'm ruthless about my calendar because I want it to reflect the pace I want to live at. Mm, that's so good. So you have a question here that is so convicting. What's it like to be on the receiving end of me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, oh. yes. Yeah. So I, that question really came to me at work in the NICU and, and thinking about how was, you know, I, I was working on being more intentional, like what's coming from me and, and how am I putting things into the world? But what I didn't consider at first was how maybe I was being perceived by the person on the other end of me, you know? And so I was thinking of that in relationship to like the parents that I would meet in the NICU who, for me, it was, you know, the whatever hundredth time I'd met a new set of NICU parents. But for them, it was most likely the first time they'd ever met someone called a neonatal therapist. And so I had to think, what's it like to be on the receiving end of me? Am I listening to them? Am I already assuming I know who they are just from reading a little few lines in their chart? Am I looking at them in the eyeballs? You know, like how, what do they feel like on the other side? And just asking myself that question was kind of humbling and harrowing and all the things because I thought, I don't know. And so I wanted to at least reflect, you know, reflect back on how I was in certain situations, even if it was just after something happened that I didn't like, how I probably came across and think, hmm, I wonder how that was for the other person. And then think, you know, the next time I have an interaction like that, this is what I'd rather try to bring and hopefully convey to that person and, and try to be better. Like if everyone acted like me today in this place, whether work or at home, if everybody was being like me today, is this place better off or worse off? Yeah. And there were days I was like, wow, probably not a good show on my part. Right. And, and uh, th those things just 
you know, that kind of reflection just helped me redecide. I mean, I, it wasn't to beat myself up. And I think we, we can all be really hard on ourselves when we're not how we want to be. But, you know, I think in the book, it just keeps going back to that moment has already gone. So I can either apologize for how I just was, if that's warranted or, and, or I can redecide how I'm going to be in the next moment. And that's the awesome thing about moments. They just like, don't hold you hostage and you can just be a diff- have a different one <laughs> the next time. <laughs> oh, I love that. So was it a more convicting question at work or at home to answer what's it like to be on the receiving end of me? Mm, you know, <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I think the stakes are different, but equally high in that at work, the people on the receiving end of me were often nonverbal little premature or sick babies who can't tell me what it's like to be on the receiving end of me except through their behavior and their stability. So they're expert vibe readers and they would tell me that um, by the, how they behave or their medical stability. But I had to, it, it's my job to be therapeutic in that moment or what the heck am I doing being a therapist in the NICU if I'm not therapeutic? there's a huge responsibility that comes with showing up for our patients that way because we're making an impression on their brain development, you know, for life, which is not to be taken lightly. However, at home, it's just so much closer, you know, and it's harder because we have so much attached to our own families and our children and how we're being perceived. And we have history too, (laughs) So I think trying to start to notice that when I was in whatever mood I might be in and then realizing my effect on my kids or my husband and being like, wow, like thinking if I was, you know, saying something snarky or whatever might be happening to think really like, wow, what it would be like to be my, to be married to me, (laughs) you know, like how do I come through the door what am I bringing into there, you know? And what's it like if we're in the car together and just all the little things, like I would think, wow, okay, that that's informative. <laughs> and you can also ask the people, right? What is it like to be, you can literally ask people in your life what it's like, and they'll be afraid to answer mostly probably. Cause they're like, why are you asking me this question? But it's, I think it's important to consider like there were so many times when I would come in and just be kind of going through the motions of, motherhood of like dinner and things and laundry and sports and nah, 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 nah. it's just like the same thing on repeat. And so I feel like it on the receiving end of me at that in those, some of those days was like, I was again, just probably a blur to them. I wasn't really paying attention. I was just like getting stuff done and not really there. Felt like at that time, it'd probably be lonely to be on the other side of me because I wasn't really there like with them I was just there near them a lot yeah I think that's a challenge for like all moms you know it's Mm -hmm. and and we do the hamster wheel of of mothering yes and so we're not present to our kids or being present to our kids it seems hard really hard you know that's why I always suggest like 15 minutes it's kind of your moment thing or just even a moment maybe a minute where yeah. you're present with your team and just really present. Yes. And, and you talk about that in your book also. Yeah. I think um, I've heard people say not even, not because of the book, but just in general, I've seen them post on Facebook or something like, 
you know, I'm trying to be more present, but you know, they're, or they beat themselves up. Like I'm not even present to my kids in my life. And, you know, I'm just running around and beating and using presence as another way to beat ourselves up mm-hmm. and not being present. And I just, again, I think that's kind of turning over our stuff to other people and letting them tell us how we should live and what presence looks like in our lives. And no one can tell you that you you'll know it when you feel it. And it doesn't, it, I don't want people to think I, I walk around in some constant state of presence, like, you know, like I've somehow arrived and that I, that is not the case. I mean, but what I've just gotten better at is having more connected strings of moments where I might be really present Mm -hmm. and, or pre-deciding before I go into a room or a space or a conversation to be really present. And that that does center me and reminds me, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we can stay in that clarity all the time, you know? So I, I think it's natural to go in and out of that level of presence. Yeah. What I love that you say is that you can continue to redecide and so you don't, like you said, you don't have to beat yourself up. Cause I had one of those days, like where everything like did not work. So I could get mad at myself or frustrated at myself or getting frustrated and stressed, or I can just redecide. Like I get to do this wonderful podcast interview with my friend Sue and be different and not be stressed. And if you beat yourself up, like you just continue you continue the stress. Yes. It's like redeciding is like clean slate, clean slate, clean slate, which just is so lovely for mothers, you know? Yes. <laughs> we, I we, think, yeah. we get to have a clean slate this next moment and this next moment, clean slate. Yes. And I've said that to even my kids now that they're adults, like, and they laugh at me, but I, I would, I might say something like whatever, just something that was probably not my best moment. Uh-huh. to them. And then I'll literally just stop myself because I don't want to stop myself. I just don't feel like it. You know, it's easier to just not notice, but I do. I do. So then I have to, so then I'll just stop and say, you know, I'm sorry. I I really didn't mean to come off that way. And I was just, you know, that was very reactive and sorry. And they're usually like, mom, it's fine. Like didn't even notice or whatever, but but it, it feels better to me to just own it in that second. And, and then just, then I can move on better if I'm just like, wow, that was, so I think it's like the ability to apologize is right there also. And, and it doesn't always require that, but sometimes I'm just like, wow, sorry. Didn't mean that, or that was horrible or whatever it is. And just like, and, you know, move, but acknowledging it helps me move on personally. Well, and that's such a wonderful thing to do for teens because they see it, they notice it, they know it's true. And if you just act like you weren't that person, then they drive them crazy. So just owning it, then they, they can let it go and move on too. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope it also means that they can do the same, you know, if they have a moment like we all do, we're just human you know, and they have a moment with us and then walk out of the room and this and that, that it gives them permission to, to maybe, maybe they do or don't, but maybe they come back later or maybe they come back five years later and say something like, man, that was a thing then, or I didn't, you know, I, you know, or something. And I think it gives them permission that they get to just be human. And then we can redecide how to be the next time. 
and yeah. you're modeling, we're modeling that for him. Yeah. So you make a distinction between problems and worry in your chapter. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So worry to me is thinking about and planning for the worst case scenario of things that haven't happened yet. You know, so worry to me is all about the future. And believe me, I have like an A plus in it. I'm not, you know, (laughs) but, but it's thinking like what could happen, you know, what, you know, it's sitting there thinking everything from, you know, it's winter still here. So thinking of like the snowstorm that hasn't hit yet. And I've already now pre-decided that like all the horrible things that might happen and I'm worried about them, putting energy into that before it even occurs. And I think we do that tons with our children. And it's natural to worry, right? Or to think about like, how are they going to do on the first day of school? And are they going to have any friends? And who's going to sit by them at lunch? And then are they going to make this team? And are they going to understand this? And what if they're not a good student? All the things that we do, but I think it's natural to have those thoughts 100%. But I think what we often get caught in is we're investing like boatloads of our energy in continuing to just live as if one is if those things are already true and also like in the energy of worry. So, and then half the time, you know, you might hold your breath like all day long almost about the thing that might happen at school mm-hmm. or that might happen when you're at work or that, and then you, you spending your energy in some way all the time. And so when you get better at saying like, can I change this thing right now? Or do I just wait and to see what happens, right? Then you can invest your energy in the place where you actually are instead of all up in the future worrying. And it's really hard to do. But I think, you know, I like Byron Katie's work about that. Like, is this true? You know, do I know that this catastrophic thing is going to happen? No, I really don't actually. Mm-hmm. And so and so in the moment, it helps my anxiety and worry and everything to just say, do I know that that thing I'm worried about is actually going to happen? I, I really don't. And so I can either choose to keep putting my energy there or I can choose to use my energy for where I am. So I think we, we worry a lot and having a place to how a way to think about it and, and things is really helpful. But then there are also, I don't want to want us to think that there, everything's a worry and not a real problem. And so in the book, I just talk about actual problems, which to me are things that just pop up in our lives that you weren't expecting. They're not things you were pre thinking about and putting your energy into. It's like the flat tire, the traffic that you get a call from school and something did happen. Um, you know, it's, it's something that just happens and it is a problem. It means it's something that either has to be addressed. Maybe it can be fixed or not, but you have to pay attention to it. And it's something that's typically not a good thing. <laughs> Wouldn't be calling it a problem. Um, <laughs> and they can be little things or they can be really giant things, but you can't really prepare for them except to know that for me anyway, or what I feel like has helped me is if I think, what is this life that keeps happening where all these problems show up? Like, when are they going to end? You know, like, when do I get to tap the mat and all these problems will just stop? Right. And, and I think instead knowing that they're going to come over and over and that that's not like some horrible premonition or prediction. It just is life and problems are going to arise. And so what are we going to do when they do, you know, and for me, 
as you well know, you know, my best like strategy for that is to tell somebody and just have a, at least one person or maybe a few people that you trust that you can go to with when you have a problem in the way that makes sense for you. And I think we're all different that way and yeah. in, in how we like to share those things, but kind of, I feel like telling someone is like a pressure relief valve for my, you know, when I have an acute problem like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you said in the book, like problems you can do something about because you're in the here and now and there's the problem. And so you're working on a, a problem and there's, that's less of an energy drain. That's kind of what you mentioned. Yeah. And you, you called it pre-worry, which I just laughed because I'm like excellent at that myself. And that is such, that is such a energy suck. I mean, just because it's all imaginative, it's not a real problem yet. And yet we're, we can be caught in it forever. And I just, as you're talking, I was thinking about like, what if we could get all that energy back of all the years, like today we could get all the energy we have wasted on pre-worry back. Oh my gosh, moms, we'd be amazing. We would be. And I, and I, so I just, in full disclosure, I was doing that literally right before this podcast. So the pre-worry, so, and I caught myself, but I was worried about a certain child of mine that I hadn't heard from in a certain amount of time who, you know, my kids are gone from the house or empty nesters. And so I felt myself pre-worrying about like all the 150 reasons that I could have not heard from said child in, you know, this time frame. And I can feel the churn, you know, the pre, the worry churn happening where my head starts going all the bad places. And then I was like, do I, I don't know that maybe the phone's dead, maybe the thing, you know, and then I was just like, I don't know that until I just need to stop, step and do step away from that and get ready for this, you know, podcast instead of sitting there dreaming up all the things that could happen and instead put my energy into like, what do I want to bring Colleen's listeners today is where I decided to put my energy instead. And however, if that child shows up with the flat tire, if that child shows up and there is an actual thing, a problem, then I can use my energy to go help my kid with this problem. I can use, yeah. you know, or whatever the problem actually is. And in our problem, the energy invested in fixing a problem is well-invested energy because you're, you're working toward a solution, whether that's in a five-minute solution or a five-year solution, it's still working towards something and pre-worry is not. Yes. Well said. All right. Well, I'm going to read your last page of your book. And the last quote is just, I loved it. So may I read that? Yes, of course. Your life is too precious for hamster wheels or hitting replay. You would not stand over a newborn baby and whisper, I hope you get to run really fast towards a vague and unrelenting goal someone else sets for you until you're so exhausted you don't remember who you are or why you matter. But you might say, I hope someday you see how unique and unprecedented you are. I hope you use whatever life you have to share what only you can share. I hope you bring the light that only you possess to every moment you have. And I hope you leave it all on the field. So good. So good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So any last advice for the moms listening? Hmm. I just feel you. <laughs> and 
I would just say, be gentle with yourself. You know, it's really hard being a mom and whatever a good mom is, I think is like a whole nother conversation we could have that we're all trying to achieve some weird thing of that. And I would just say, have a lot of grace for yourself and just remember that you can always start over in the next moment and that you get to choose who you become slowly over time. And, but through these little tiny moments that are available to us, there's no perfect and there's no finish line. Yeah. So the moms who are listening, if they want to contact you, how can they, and how can they get your book? The best way to reach me is just go to sueludwig.com. And there's a contact page there. You can send me an email or contact me there. You can get the book from, from that website, but you can also get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the places online that books are sold and in some bookstores as well. Yes. Starting March 8th. Starting March 8th. <laughs> you can pre-order now. It's released on March 8th. Well, that is right around the corner. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Sue. This has been great, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And thank you for reading the book and for getting it and for helping me conceptualize it on a hill a long way ago. (laughs) It's so fun to see it. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.